0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. This is Marty Lockman, and I'm happy to bring you another member of our community with a fascinating story that has not only positively impacted our community, but has made great contributions to the entire area that we live in. And once again, I want to thank the following people for their support which allows us to bring these stories to you. Leeds and Sunfine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years. AT&T, who reminds us it can wait. Please don't drive distracted. And Back Nine Greens, whose work is known worldwide. Remember that golf art starts with Back Nine Greens. Today's guest, as I mentioned, has been part of our community since 1998 and his contributions have been tremendous not only as a member but a trusted doctor and medical advisor to a large number of the members here at bighorn dr hal tarleton whose story starts in monroe north carolina doctor please start us on your
1: journey well, as you stated, I was born in Monroe, North Carolina. Actually, I was a home delivery. My old doctor, when I was growing up, said the reason I was so smart, I had, my mother didn't have to go through the anesthesia, that sort of thing. You know, went to grammar school and graduated from Unionville, North Carolina. My graduating class was like 25 people. My first work type was I was a service station attendant during my uh, high school years and uh, you know work weekends and nights later I uh, worked with a food administrating unit as I was preparing to go to to college required that we wear white clothes and somebody asked me in the hospital one day uh, are you pre-med and I said you betcha so (laughs) And then I walked away and said, why not? <laughs> and I attended a junior college in Wingate, North Carolina, but got all the credits of two years, crammed into one year, and then transferred to uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And after uh, two years there, I was able to apply to medical school. The application board thought I was a little young, So uh, they suggested that I wait another year, and during that year, I worked in in genetics, field genetics, doing pedigrees for various uh, disease types. The most prominent one was hypercholesterolemia. After uh, finally getting into medical school, I was at Chapel Hill for uh, two years, and then in a then transferred to UCLA as part of a student transfer program where I graduated from UCLA, went back to uh, North Carolina as a resident. I was fortunate enough to come by a, a plan for paying for my last couple of years of medical school when I joined the Air Force as part of what they call the Senior Medical Student Program, whereby Every year that they paid me, I had to give them an extra year. So uh, after uh, my uh, residency, I was uh, stationed at the Air Force Academy for uh, my entire experience in the Air Force. It was during that time that I really learned to study and really learned to apply what I knew in medicine. And in addition to the Air Force Academy, I ran an emergency room downtown in Colorado Springs where a plastic surgeon kind of took me under his wings and taught me how to do uh, plastic uh, repairs on skin injuries. And then uh, while, while at the Air Force Academy, I met a couple of people who were coming out to Palm Desert, California, a couple of doctors. They said, you should come. I uh, said, well, you know, I, I plan to go back to UCLA to Dr. William Longmire's cardiovascular surgical program. They said, well, you know, you, you've you been here at the Air Force Academy for four years. You've learned a hell of a lot, it seems to us. I mean, why don't you just go into private practice? So that's what I did and uh, boarded and family practice. Most of my training had actually been in internal medicine. We came out, and after I was here for a couple of years, Eisenhower finally was completed. I was at Eisenhower for 10 years, but after I first arrived in the non-existence of Eisenhower, uh, you know, I worked in emergency rooms during the night. You had this magic ticket uh, it was called a An MD license, I could make a lot of money working. I worked in emergency rooms during the night and ran my private practice during the day. Eventually, it worked out pretty well. After about, I think, 11 years, I thought I might retire and thought I had enough money. It didn't work out that way. I stayed retired for about six months and then I kind of missed medicine, but it was kind of forced back into practice too. The people who had our money absconded with it so i was back to it's day one so after about seven years in north carolina after i sold my original practice here eisenhower sent their feeling feelers out and asked me to come back and they'd pay me a little bit of money if i came back and i came back and really had a ready practice waiting and so it's that that's it i've been been here Ever since. <laughs>
0: when, a couple of questions. When when you were young, because it almost seems like being a doctor was something that you were going to do from a very early age. Is that true? And and did your parents encourage this? Or was there any background from them that, that medicine was something that you wanted to get in? How, how did that all come about?
1: Well, just as I mentioned, uh, I never thought about it. I, you know, we were... My father was a carpenter, and we did cotton farming. And we were quite, uh, you know, we raised our own food. Never really had a hell of a lot of experience with the outside world. I mean, we were so self-sufficient. The only thing that we got from the supermarket was sugar and flour. Other, Other than that, we raised our own food. So there was really no thought of going to medical school. It's just something that happened. And I don't but just that one incident working with the food administering administrating unit at Union Memorial Hospital in Monroe when somebody asked me being dressed in white if I were pre med and I said yes. And, and I don't know why. It just you know sounded good. Yeah, it sounded good. So I pursued it and I was fortunate enough to, you know, to to make make good enough grades to be accepted.
0: What was the year that you first came to the desert?
1: I came to the desert in 1972.
0: Okay, so, I mean, early on. I mean, to say that things have changed would be an understatement. Oh, But when you first came out here, uh, I mean, it's still kind of the Wild West, even in the early
1: 70s. Oh, yeah, very much so. I used to be able to drive from Eisenhower Medical Center to Indio Community Hospital in Indio in 10 minutes. But of course, that was (laughs) for the little souped up car.
0: (laughs) So now you've come back out here, Eisenhower's opened. That was a monumental uh, thing, I'm sure, for the desert, just to have this kind of a medical facility. Yes. And so when you came back out here, now you've, this was going to be your home.
1: Oh yeah. Well, I came came here in 1972 and, pr- and started practicing medicine in Palm Desert. Actually, I came at the invitation of a physician in Indio, who asked me to come out and practice with him and teach him how to do tonsillectomies. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden, I see one Saturday whereby he had scheduled 25 tonsillectomies, and I said, "Oh." oh. I don't know about this guy, so I went and practiced on my own here in Palm Desert uh, in the what was called the Cannon Building. We had two consultation suite and an exam room in the first office. That lasted about a week, uh, so we you know we moved across the aisle and had two exam rooms and a consultation suite. And that that was during the summer. Recalled that yeah, I mean, there weren't that many physicians here at that time, but people would bring their lawn chair during the summer and sit outside in line in order to get the office. It wasn't a long wait before I had a, a nicely structured practice.
0: Wasn't it true, or is, as I recall, during that time, people with certain ailments, or they were coming to the desert was a, a, a healthy place to come. You know, people from other kinds of climates would come out here, not just retired people, but people for their own well-being would come out here.
1: Yeah, well, you you had people that were sent out here with arthritis and with asthma. Uh, That was the most popular reason for relocating people out here. (laughs) And then became a little more sophisticated. The people from Seattle and Oregon were showing up with seasonal affective disorder. <laughs> but asthma and arthritis were the, big, the biggies at the time.
0: What did you do for pleasure? Did you get into golf then? And
1: Actually, I played my first round of golf when I was a resident in North Carolina. Didn't get a chance to play much. Eventually, joined La Quinta Country Club played a little bit out there, not a lot. At that time, the practice was so busy. To waste the time from traveling from the office to the country club was a big deal. I'd play out there every three or four weeks. And with the Springs Country Club being built, we uh, sold our home, South Palm Desert, moved to the Springs, so I could play, you know, a little bit more frequently. I became quite fascinated with golf. i you know, played by myself a lot the summer because nobody was around in the mid-70s, to late 70s and 80s. So I I played really a lot of golf in the summer. But I would put myself in situations uh, whereby I had to hit a trick shot, practice all those things, or I'd play 18 holes playing a Titleist against a top flight. I got to be fairly decent at it. I you know, won the club championship at the Springs four years running, and then they sent somebody over to my office and asked me not to play in the club championship again. So after four years, uh, they said, okay, you can play now. <laughs> so I went back and won it a couple more times, probably played more than 5,000 rounds at the Springs.
0: Well, well, you got the bug for sure once you started playing because it's easy to happen. We've all been there. Yeah. Okay. So now you got this great practice. You're enjoying golf. How does this life just progress in that way? And you continue to work. And what then brought you to Bighorn?
1: I started taking care of d I think in the late seventies, maybe mid to late seventies, and then he was gone back to Bristol, Tennessee. And when he came back or came back, you know, he brought he bought Bighorn and he came over with a contract and he said, You're joining and I said, I don't need to belong to another country club. I have, you know, privileges to finish at the vintage in El Dorado and I'm a member at the Springs and he said, You're joining. <laughs> and uh, he said, I'll be back in a week. So he came back. The initial contract was for 40000 at that time. But he came back in a week. I looked at the contract. It was 85000 And he said, oh, it went up. <laughs> <laughs> when after he first brought the club, I played a fair amount with D and some of the other guys, uh, Mark Wilson, Pig and Wolf, that sort of thing. As I've became busier. And, you know, my ability to play golf at that point uh, was somewhat unpredictable because I was still kind of in public practice and had about 6,000 members in the practice at that time. But when I went into the membership practice, of course, it became became easier to play golf. And so what were
0: your first impressions of D. Hubbard when you met him?
1: Well, Dee and I had a lot of the same interests. Golf, you know, good time, (laughs) good liquor, and good women. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as long as
0: you have that in common, things are going to work out.
1: I think so. So, you know, we were kind of soulmates to some extent. I mean, we had, you know, the same interests, you know, golf. And, you know, he was obviously a financial genius, and I knew nothing about finances i can hardly i can't read a stock page i know when it's got a plus in front of it, it's good it's a minus it's bad or if the thing's going up and it's red that's good but he was good in finances and uh, he was actually the one who said you know you need to get out of public practice and concentrate on you know a few people and <laughs> he
0: was he certainly was a visionary not yeah. only for himself but for yeah. others and gave Uh, good business advice to those that wanted to
1: to listen. Oh, I firmly agree.
0: So now you're at Bighorn. You've been here for quite a while, one of the first, not one of the first people, but certainly among the first First, that was here. You've seen it grow, and you've seen it become the club that it is now. I often say when I was young... I didn't know that places like Bighorn existed. And somebody pointed out when I was young, they didn't exist. (laughs) That's the guy, right, yeah. Now, practice is going great. You're enjoying Bighorn. What goes on as far as the rest of your life?
1: Well, that's about it. I play golf, I go to the office, I go home, I play golf, I go to the office. <laughs> that's, that's it. It's very redundant. The car I just turned in from the lease had about 15,000 miles on it after three years. That just <laughs>
0: tells you a little bit about where <laughs> yeah. you're going.
1: Yeah. I'm anti-social to some extent. I don't like to go here yawning in mm-hmm. every place, especially during the COVID pandemic. But I like my own time. I like to you know, to be alone. I like to to study. I still try to learn as much as I can about medicine because it's so inordinately complex now. And
0: at this place, in our community, and we always talk about there's a lot of developments, but this really is a community where people live and know each other and their neighbors and all that. You're an institution at this well
1: I appreciate the fact that people ask me for medical advice even though they're not they're not my patients necessarily but even the patients that have identified with me through the membership will depend they, they might go to scripts for a procedure but they always they, they frequently call me and say what do you think and I appreciate that I, I try to you know I, I consider bighorn, more than just a practice. I mean, most of these people I can say I identify with. It's kind of family, you know. To me, it's been a very heartwarming membership, so to speak. I've enjoyed these people so much.
0: Well, it goes both ways yeah. because your reputation and the feeling that people have for you is, is certainly that of a person that they can count on. Who has had the greatest influence on your life? What people have had the greatest influence on your life?
1: Well, when I was, uh, the year between undergraduate school and medical school, there was a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. John Graham. Uh, Dr. Graham was a pathologist who had an interest in genetics. And he was very encouraging. At one point, I said, screw medical school, I'll just go to dental school. I know I can get in there easily. He said, no, no, you stay here, you're going to medical school. He said, as a matter of fact you've already you've always already been accepted next year, so don't you know just stay here and do what you're going to do and then, I don't know, I guess my old family doctor in Monroe, North Carolina, he always had time you know if I wanted to go in and talk to him he would, even though he was seeing ninety patients today, he'd spend a few minutes with me and and uh I'd just talk about medicine and so on. But he was very influential. I've had so many people that have been kind and nice to me in life that there's so many, I I can't believe it. Another person that that really influenced me to a great extent was a pathologist that was at the Air Force Academy at the same time I was and came out here. If we got a hard case, uh, we would work all day and into the night on trying to resolve it or trying to figure out what was going on and what procedures we need to do, bone marrow and that sort of thing. Well, he came out and set up a practice here in the Valley and private practice of pathology. But he always encouraged me. He said, you got something special, you know, run with it. I mean, because to me, medicine to a great extent is like the crossword puzzle. You know, you gotta have, you know, certain words, letters and so forth, certain clues to get everything kinda put together and then after you get a good diagnosis, then you can treat it, but it's always the game. You gotta get the right history, physical, laboratory, imaging studies, and then you can put it all together and know how to manage it effectively.
0: Also, though, with all that technical expertise, you come from an era, I think, especially when you started, that the relationship between doctor and patient was more personal.
1: Um, I tried to carry that on. When I first started, pardon me for interrupting, but when I first started, we had very few diagnostic modalities to work with. We didn't have ultrasound. We certainly didn't have CT. We didn't have MRI. We had a, uh, every once in a while you'd run across a, a vascular radiologist who, was, who would be helpful. Uh, you didn't have echocardiography. So you were really dependent on your history and your physical examination to affect an appropriate diagnosis and treatment.
0: What have been the greatest challenges during these challenging times?
1: I think the coronavirus has been one of the biggest challenges. The reason I say that is I'm so people dependent on, you know, their facial expressions, uh, how they move, how they act, you know, and trying to do telemedicine to me is is uncomfortable because I like to see the patient sitting across from me. I like to put my hands on the patients. It makes it easier to examine people if they're undressed, and you discover so many things. Uh, maybe a melanoma, maybe a squamous cell, or something of that nature, but personal interaction is the most important thing. But this, this pandemic, you know, we've been At least 60% of our time now, you know, answering questions with reference to, you know, what's the incubation period? How long should I stay away from people? Are there any after effects? And when can I get the goddamn vaccine? (laughs) That's for sure.
0: (laughs) And and what do you see as the future and how long is that? I mean, it's, everybody's still guessing, I guess, as far as timing. Mm-hmm. But where do you see in the next six months this all going?
1: I think to a great extent resolved. I know there's been some viral mutations that are still, you know, the, the, the virus is still effectively avoided by the use of the uh, uh, vaccines Uh, But viruses are smart, you know, they'll figure out a way around it, I'm afraid. Well, that's everybody's fear, of course. But I think within six months, you'll start to see some degree of, you know, back toward normalcy.
0: Okay, so now that's where we think we might be going, and I'm certainly trusting you because you have that knowledge. But what advice would you give members of our community in the near future, over the next six months, until we get to normal?
1: Well, you know, get the immunization when it becomes available. But still, you, you know, you've got to depend on the physical measures, you know, the mask, the social distancing, and hand washing, that sort of thing. That's still the, you know, avoidance is the, is the biggest, it comes into place with uh, this viral disease. And uh, until the, we get herd immunity, it's, it's the best treatment.
0: With all your accomplishments, and you've been doing this for a while, what's the future look like
1: for you? I plan to do it until I start, until I lose interest. Number one, number two, until I, if I start to misdiagnose and not effectively perform as a physician, then I, then I want to go. But I, I, I like what I do. I like the pace that I do it at. I try to. Schedule patients at hourly intervals. I like to enjoy the patients because every patient has a, not just a medical story but a social story. They have a, they have something interesting in the background. But I like the practice as it is now. I'm not rushed. I then have so many things that I can do diagnostically, MR, CT, etc. I have all the information that. I could ever want to come by on a simple iPad, you know, as far as medical information. I mean, it's one of the references that I use is a thing called up-to-date. There's more knowledge in up-to-date than you could fill this room with if you had it in paper books.
0: I know it's difficult to ask a doctor this question. Any good stories you can share with us about (laughs) what's gone
1: on over the years? Well... Yeah, there's a lot of good stories <laughs> out some, some I probably shouldn't. Say. No, I've, I, you know, I've uh, taken care of a lot of interesting people in my lifetime. Uh, Lucille Ball, uh, I guess, was the about the first person that was really very interesting. I used to take care of. Gene Mock, uh, and the old baseball manager, and he, uh, he and I were great friends, uh, great competitors. He uh, always admired the way I played golf. But I took care of his whole family. His mother, mother, his mother asked me one time, said, hey, how long do you think her, that I'm going to live? I said, well, I'm going to try to keep you alive until Gene wins a pennant. She said, oh. I don't think it. <laughs> that <laughs> that so, seemed like it was going to be
0: forever, did yeah, it?
1: Oh, yeah, to her it did. I, I don't I see. I think he was in the American League playoffs but one year But when he was with the Angels. But he was fun. So it was mock, and that took care of Bench. Uh, Johnny Bench, uh, when he was living here, I still communicate with him on a regular basis. I guess uh, other people that I have recently took care of, or yeah, took care of was uh, Dennis Rodman's old girlfriend, I've forgotten her name. Carmen
0: Electra.
1: Oh, Carmen Electra, yeah, she was, uh, she was a delight. She was very kind quite nice, you know, easy to take care of, follow directions. I mean, she was not an airhead. But like I say, over the years, I've taken care of a lot of celebrities, a lot of nice people otherwise. And it, it, it used to be fun working in the emergency room. But I guess the uh, at the Air Force Academy, when I was stationed there, this I was driving home one day in my nice new red Corvette with the tops off, and it started to rain. And thunder and lightning. And I see this kid get hit directly by lightning on his bicycle and throws him over into the ditch and he goes into convulsions. I pull him out and get him going again. I would suspect, but I don't know, but I just suspect that he was in ventricular fibrillation and hit him across the chest for a few times. He woke up, went to the hospital, had no brain damage. It was a great thing. The Air Force Academy uh, cadet was walking across the terrazza one day and lightning struck him. They had just finished a big dinner of, I think, spaghetti is what it was. So they threw him the back of the pickup truck, brought him to the hospital, and dug through the spaghetti and got him intubated. And he survived, uh, but he was commissioned as a janitor. You know, those are a few of the Nice experience, but another experience I had was uh, with a kid who had cerebral palsy. He, was, he had some neuromuscular problems and rigidity, and he aspirated a hot dog. They brought him to the ER, and I dug the hot dog out of his windpipe, and he woke up, and he had no spasticity anymore.
0: So a question that I ask everybody, Dr. What advice would you give the 20-year-old you today?
1: Be persistent. You know, you may not have the best or the most marbles in the world, but if you work hard, be persistent, and be affable, be available, then you're going to be a success. I mean, it's, you know, people like people that are available. And, of course, I'm available 24-7, so it's easy for people to get to me. I've gotten accustomed to it. I I'm even in my own answering service now, so the availability is the biggest thing. Just be persistent, work hard. You won't have to do it all your life. It'll quieten down after a while. You'll accumulate something. You will be able to kind of slow down and enjoy life and enjoy your practice and so forth.
0: Well, that's advice not only for becoming a a doctor, but for life itself. And and, uh, again... I want to thank you on behalf of this community for your service, for your friendship to the people here, to the things that you've done. And I say this as a great compliment, you are an institution here at the club. There's a lot of people that are very thankful to you and for you. Again, I appreciate you coming in here today and doing this and sharing some of these stories because it means a lot. Thank
1: you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you, Dr. Tarleton, for sharing all the stories that shaped your life and have impacted the Bighorn community. You are a part of the great history of our club, and I thank you. And thanks again to Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers for being an integral part of our community for over 70 years. And AT&T, who along with being a worldwide communications company, make it their mission to support local communities in efforts like ours to bring you positive messages. And Back Nine Greens, who create golf art in their designs and installation. And they have a direct connection to our community. We look forward to bringing you the next episode of the Bighorn Podcast very soon. And thank you for being a listener and a supporter of our broadcasts.